And he promises other victories that you were so far unable to realize, which Allah has already encompassed. Endeavor is Allah over all things competent. And if those who disbelieve had fought you, they would have turned their backs in flight. Then they would not find a protector or a helper. This is the Sunnah of Allah which has occurred before, and never will you find in the Sunnah of Allah any change. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6-9, Crises and Conflicts. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. After World War II, Iraq, Transjordan, Syria, and Lebanon finally get their independence. King Farouk of Egypt succumbs to British pressure and fires his prime minister, losing the respect of the Egyptian people. A coalition of six Arab nations are defeated in the 1948 war with Israel. This leads to hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees. And with that, let's take a look at the new leadership in the Middle East. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. New Leadership in the Middle East In 1949, Transjordan was renamed to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which is its current name. Two years later, on July 21, 1951, King Abdullah was assassinated while praying at Masjid al-Aqsa. Abdullah was succeeded by his son Talal. A year later, Talal was forced to abdicate due to mental illness. He was succeeded by his son Hussein. 
The following year, in 1952, the Arab League dissolved the all-Palestine government, taking on the responsibility of representing the Palestinian cause. King Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, King of Saudi Arabia, died on November 9, 1953, at the age of 78. He was succeeded by his second oldest son, Saud ibn Abdul Aziz. King Faisal II of Iraq, now 23 years old, was deposed in a military coup in 1958. We discussed this event back in our mini-series on the Iranian Revolution. Let's listen to that clip now. Just like King Fuad in Egypt, King Faisal in Iraq was also a puppet king installed by British overlords. The Iraqi military admired the Egyptian Free Officers Movement and believed in Gamal Abdel Nasser's pan-Arab nationalism. Iraq's military commanders were furious at their king for supporting the British during the Suez Crisis. 21 months later, the Iraqi Free Officers Movement toppled their king. Unfortunately, the deposed Iraqi king and his family were not sent into exile like the former king of Egypt. Instead, they were marched into the palace courtyard and machine-gunned to death. This marked the end of the Hashemite dynasty in Iraq. But Egypt was the country with the most upheaval during the 1950s. The Suez Crisis Let's talk a little more about the Egyptian coup that inspired the coup in Iraq. After he dismissed his prime minister, most Egyptians saw King Farouk as a British puppet. His popularity took another hit after the 1948 war with Israel. The king did not support the war and was partially blamed for the Arab loss. Over the next five years, King Farouk came to be seen as a negligent, foolish, overindulgent oaf living off the backs of his people. The Egyptian government was rife with corruption and graft. The king wasted the nation's wealth at foreign resorts and casinos, and British troops still patrolled the canal zone. The only person more corrupt than the king was his new prime minister, Mustafa al-Nahas, whom he could not stand. The Egyptian military, frustrated by these two men, were ready to get rid of both of them. Prime Minister Mustafa al-Nahas, aware of this sentiment, made a big show of canceling the treaty that gave Britain control of the canal. But less than two weeks later, he signed a new treaty with the British, extending their control for an additional 20 months. The Egyptian military finally had enough. On July 23, 1952, General Mohammed Naguib and Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser staged a coup, overthrowing the government. King Farouk abdicated, then fled into exile. He was replaced by his infant son, Fuad II. But that did not last long, as the rest of Farouk's family soon joined him in exile. The prime minister was arrested and imprisoned for a few years before being released and allowed to retire. The new military government abolished the monarchy in 1953 and declared Egypt a republic. Mohammed Naguib served as Egypt's first president until he and Gamal Abdel Nasser had a falling out. 
In the ensuing political struggle, Abdel Nasser emerged as the new leader of Egypt. Abdel Nasser had ambitious goals. He wanted Egypt to be the foremost power in the Middle East and made it clear that he was not going to be another Western puppet. He began by purchasing hundreds of millions of dollars in weapons from communist Czechoslovakia. He declared Egypt neutral in the Cold War and established relations with the Soviet Union. He also voiced support for Algerian independence from France. And he blockaded the Straits of Tehran at the opening of the Gulf of Aqaba, blocking Israel's access to the Red Sea. The United States, Great Britain, and France were shocked to see such boldness coming out of Egypt. The Israelis, who had been crossing the border to raid Gaza and Sinai for years, were already very familiar with Abdel Nasser. In retaliation for Gamal Abdel Nasser's audacity, the Americans and the British canceled plans to finance the Aswan Dam project in Egypt. Abdel Nasser retaliated in turn by nationalizing the Suez Canal. From his perspective, Egypt could raise the funds to finance the dam using tolls from the canal. This was just too much for Great Britain, who began plotting with France and Israel to invade Egypt in 1956. Britain was angry about Abdel Nasser nationalizing the Suez Canal. France was angry about Abdel Nasser supporting Algeria. And Israel was angry about Abdel Nasser blockading the Straits of Tehran. Their plan was for Israel to invade Egypt, thereby giving Britain and France an excuse to send in troops to, quote-unquote, protect the canal. The plan almost worked. With its new weapons from Czechoslovakia, Egypt probably could have beaten back the Israeli invasion. But Egypt did not have the firepower to take on Britain and France at the same time. Within a week, the three nations had occupied much of the canal zone and were preparing to push deeper into Egypt. The Soviet Union threatened to intervene. The United States was never informed of this plan and did not want Russian troops in the Middle East. With heavy diplomatic pressure from the United States, all four parties accepted a UN-brokered ceasefire. British and French troops had to withdraw from all Egyptian territory. The U.S. promised to work with Egypt to keep the Straits of Tehran open for Israel. And Egypt promised to demilitarize the Sinai Peninsula. U.N. peacekeeping forces would join Israeli and Egyptian troops along their shared border. This was a diplomatic victory for Gamal Abdel Nasser, who stood up to the West and to Israel. It was also a clear sign that the former imperialist powers, Britain and France, were no longer the players they used to be. The United States and the Soviet Union were the new global superpowers. The Six-Day War Israel's confidence and belligerence grew exponentially in the two decades following the 1948 war. Israel was no longer just a Zionist fantasy or a British side project. Israel was a real nation and it was going to be a force to reckon with for years to come. Nothing made this more clear than the case of Adolf Eichmann. In 1961, Mossad, Israel's espionage and intelligence agency, 
kidnapped Eichmann from Argentina, where he'd been hiding for nearly a decade. As the Nazi architect of the Holocaust, Eichmann was one of Israel's most wanted figures. Eichmann was brought to Israel where his televised trial informed the world of Israel's intelligence capabilities. Eichmann was eventually found guilty and executed by hanging. While Israel was flexing its international muscles, the Arab population of Palestine was dwindling. By the mid-60s, there were only a quarter of a million Arabs in Israel, barely 10% of the entire population. At the same time, tensions were steadily increasing between Israel and the Arab states. Cross-border skirmishes continued between all sides. Gamal Abdel Nasser was also brimming with renewed confidence. His political victory during the Suez Crisis showed that Egypt was also a force to be reckoned with. Abdel Nasser also wanted to promote Egypt as the leader of the Arab world, and he used the Palestinian situation as his vehicle. By 1967, Abdel Nasser made it clear that he wanted a fight with Israel. He openly called for war against Israel, demanding the United Nations remove its troops from Sinai and blockaded the Straits of Tehran yet again. On June 5, 1967, Abdel Nasser got the fight he wanted, just not when he expected it. Israel launched simultaneous surprise attacks on Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. The war began with Israel destroying the air forces of all three Arab nations while the planes were still on the ground. The next day, still reeling from the attack, the Arab nations imposed an oil embargo on Israel and its allies, particularly targeting the United States and Great Britain. By June 8th, Israel had reached the Suez Canal in Egypt and had taken much of the West Bank from Jordan. To the north, Israel had also pushed deep into Syria, occupying the Golan Heights. The United Nations finally brokered a ceasefire on June 10th. Having captured the West Bank from Jordan, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the Gaza Strip and Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, Israel had nearly tripled its size. This was a devastating and humiliating loss for the Arab world. Hundreds of square miles of territory was lost. Nearly 18,000 Arabs were killed, compared to less than a thousand Israelis. And half a million Arabs had fled Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. But there were still over a million Arabs left behind in these occupied territories. These Arabs and their descendants would suffer for decades under the heel of Israeli occupation. In an ironic twist, its victory in the Six-Day War ensured Israel would never be an all-Jewish state. Israel would now be saddled with millions of Arab refugees for decades to come. Even today, as the Palestinian population continues to grow and the Israeli population stagnates, Israel's Jewish majority is also threatened. Later that year, the United Nations passed Resolution 242 calling for a just and lasting peace and declaring that Israel's acquisition and occupation of territory by war was illegal. Resolution 242 called for the withdrawal of Israeli forces from occupied territories and a permanent solution for the refugee crisis. Needless to say, Israel ignored all of this. 
As the 60s ended and the 70s began, a new wave of leaders came to the forefront in the Middle East. In Israel, Golda Meir was elected prime minister in 1969. The following year, Gamal Abdel Nasser died and Anwar Sadat became the new Egyptian president. In the year after that, Hafid al-Assad rose to power in Syria. Al-Assad, having participated in two previous coups, seemed to have finally perfected the art of overthrowing his government. As the leader of the Syrian Ba'ath Party, he would remain in power for the next 29 years. A new brand of Palestinian leadership was also on the rise. This leadership really began 20 years earlier when a young activist named Yasser Arafat organized the Palestinian Students' Union in Cairo in 1951. That same year, another young Arab, this time a Christian Palestinian named George Habash, started the Arab Nationalist Movement. The Arab Nationalist Movement was a far-left, secular, Marxist organization inspired by Gamal Abdel Nasser. In time, it would become known as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or PFLP. Several years later, Yasser Arafat and other Palestinian intellectuals formed a new organization called Fatah. Founded in 1959, Fatah would take on the leadership role of Palestinian affairs after the Six-Day War. But perhaps the most prominent Palestinian organization was Munadhamatu Tahrir al-Filistinia, also known as the Palestinian Liberation Organization. The PLO was first formed in 1964 in East Jerusalem. The PLO, which claimed to represent all Palestinians, rejected Israel's legitimacy and demanded a Palestinian state based on the British mandate. Its first chairman was prominent Palestinian politician and diplomat Ahmed Shukairi. However, in 1969, Yasser Arafat became its chairman. Arafat moved to Jordan when Israel prohibited him from establishing headquarters in occupied Palestine. There are two important things to understand about the PLO. First, it is a secular organization. Even though most of its members were Muslim, many of them also espoused Marxist ideologies. Since Islam was not a big factor with the PLO, it attracted a wide assortment of characters, many of whom were neither Arab nor Muslim. The second thing to understand is that the PLO is really an umbrella organization. Fatah, the PFLP, and all the other groups affiliated with the Palestinian cause come under the PLO. The PLO took a more assertive role in Palestinian affairs after the Six-Day War. It rejected UN Resolution 242 and pledged to wage a guerrilla war to free Palestine. This assertive attitude and loose organization caused problems for the PLO. In September 1970, PFLP militants hijacked three planes traveling from New York City to London. They forced the planes to land in Jordan, where the PLO's headquarters were. Eventually, all of the passengers were freed, though the PFLP blew up the empty planes. After this incident, King Hussein ordered his military to remove all Palestinian militant organizations from Jordan, including the PLO. 
Some of these organizations had grown strong enough and bold enough to challenge Jordanian sovereignty. The Jordanian military eventually prevailed and the Palestinian militants were driven out of Jordan. But the death toll was high. Over 3,000 Palestinians were killed in the struggle. The militants who survived Black September, as this incident became known, fractured and spread throughout the Middle East. The PLO relocated to southern Lebanon. Some militants joined the ongoing civil war in Lebanon, while others formed new, independent militant organizations. One of these organizations, which took on the name Black September, attacked Israeli athletes at the Olympics in Munich, Germany in 1972. This led to the death of 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team. The PLO and Fatah have always denied any connection to the Black September organization. However, similar to pre-independence Israeli militants, there were many people who operated in both groups. In 1974, Yasser Arafat and the PLO brought their message to the world stage. The Arab summit that year recognized the PLO as the sole representative of the Palestinian people. As leader of the PLO, Yasser Arafat was allowed to address the United Nations and explain the nature of the Palestinian struggle. When he spoke at the UN General Assembly that year, Arafat explained the history of Zionist immigration to Palestine beginning in the late 1800s. He said that early immigration eventually led to the occupation and expulsion of the Palestinians. He discussed the plight of the Palestinian people, refugees in their own homes and scattered across the globe. He accused the Zionists of being the real terrorists since Israel was involved in military conflicts in Algiers and Mozambique. Finally, he called on Israel to end its policies and create a truly democratic Palestine. The Turbulent 70s Yasser Arafat's speech at the United Nations underscored a decade rife with turbulence. This turbulence was felt around the globe, but especially in the Middle East. In addition to the ongoing conflict surrounding Israel and Palestine, there were also problems in Lebanon. The tensions between the various religious groups continued to grow after Lebanon's independence. The Maronite Christians, still holding a slight majority, consolidated more power leading to deep resentment in the other groups. Inevitably, Christians, Muslims, and Druze clashed frequently during the first three decades of independence. By the 1970s, these clashes had become full-on battles. The conflict between Israel and the Arab nations further exacerbated the situation in Lebanon. The Arab-Israeli wars created thousands of Palestinian refugees, many of whom fled into southern Lebanon. The militant groups King Hussein had driven out of Jordan found many willing recruits among these refugees. Before long, the militants were conducting cross-border raids into Israel. The Lebanese government was too weak to stop these raids, giving Israel an excuse to launch strikes and invasions into Lebanon. Nervous about Israel establishing a permanent presence in Lebanon, Syria sent its military to bolster the Maronite Christians. This resulted in a peculiar situation. The secular government of Syria, led by an Alawite Shia, was supporting the Christians of Lebanon 
against the Jews of Israel who were fighting the Sunni Muslims of Palestine. The Ramadan War All of this came to a head in 1973 when Israel raided Lebanon and killed three PLO leaders. Frustrated by Israel's belligerence, the Lebanese government signed the Milkart Protocol, which gave the PLO more autonomy in southern Lebanon. This angered Israel, who still refused to return the territory it captured during the Six-Day War. On October 6, 1973, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel. This conflict, known as the Ramadan War to the Arabs and the Yom Kippur War to the Israelis, caught Israel flat-footed. For the first time since the 1948 war, Israel's existence was seriously threatened. But then, Uncle Sam stepped in. American President Richard Nixon authorized Operation Nickelgrass bringing significant military aid to Israel. Defeating Israel would have been difficult under any circumstances. With the addition of U.S. military aid, it was now impossible. Israel reversed the initial Arab advances, pushing them back into Egyptian and Syrian territory. By the time the United Nations brokered an end to the fighting on October 25th, Israeli forces had established strong positions in Syria and Sinai. All three nations suffered heavy losses in this conflict, but the death toll was especially high for Egypt. 15,000 Egyptians lost their lives compared to 3,500 Syrians and 2,700 Israelis. Nonetheless, in the ensuing negotiations, Egypt won a significant victory by regaining the Sinai Peninsula. The United States' support for Israel during the war triggered a backlash from the Arab world. They imposed another oil embargo, scaling back production and refusing to export oil to Israel's allies, especially the U.S. This was the first effective use of oil as an economic weapon. Oil prices skyrocketed from $3 a barrel to $11.65 a barrel, with a peak price of nearly $40 a barrel. A Muslim Malaise Things continued to worsen in the Middle East after the Ramadan War. The United States, shaken by the oil embargo, was desperate to prove itself an unbiased friend to both Israel and Arabs. From 1974 to 1975, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger traveled between various Middle Eastern cities attempting to open dialogue between Israel and the Arab nations. This shuttle diplomacy, as the media dubbed it, sparked hopes for peace and relief from the oil embargo. Egypt agreed to open the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping. Israel and Syria both agreed to pull troops from the Golan Heights. The American people were desperate for good news after a decade that included humiliation in Vietnam, the Watergate scandal, and an oil embargo. Everyone praised Kissinger's diplomatic skills. While tensions may have eased between Israel, Egypt, and Syria, the rest of the Middle East was in turmoil. Lebanon The constant back and forth between Christians and Muslims in Lebanon had escalated to full-scale civil war. 
1976, Lebanese Christian militias, backed by Syria, attacked Tel Az-Zatar, a Palestinian refugee camp in Beirut. Fatah tried to fight off the Christians, but were hopelessly outnumbered. By the time it was all over, between 2,000 and 3,000 Palestinian refugees had been killed. The fighting in Lebanon would only get worse. By the early 80s, various nations, groups, and proxies were operating in Lebanon. These included the United Nations, the United States, Israel, the PLO, Syria, Iraq, and the Soviet Union. In 1978, Israel attacked PLO bases in southern Lebanon. The purpose of this military operation was to create a buffer zone along the Israel-Lebanon border. From a military and political standpoint, the operation was successful, but it also displaced nearly a quarter of a million Palestinians who were already refugees. Israel would continue to occupy southern Lebanon for the next two decades. With so many groups and so much violence in such a small space, chaos, destruction, and death mounted on all sides in Lebanon. The various alliances and battle lines shifted on a daily basis, and it soon became impossible to tell who was fighting who. Saudi Arabia With oil revenue pouring in, Saudi Arabia embarked on a modernization campaign. Buffered by Jordan, Saudi Arabia never got fully involved in the Palestinian cause. King Faisal of Saudi Arabia led the oil embargo against the United States after it sent military aid to Israel during the Ramadan War. When advised of potential U.S. strikes against Saudi oil fields, King Faisal reportedly said, You are the ones who cannot live without oil. We came from the desert and our ancestors lived on dates and milk. And we can easily go back to living like that again. King Faisal's strong stance on the embargo increased his popularity in Saudi Arabia. This allowed him to withstand pushback from the religious establishment who disagreed with many of his reforms. His popularity also kept the Arab nationalists who wanted to overthrow him at bay. One of those who disagreed with King Faisal's reforms was a young Saudi prince named Khalid ibn Musaid. Prince Khalid led a group of protesters to attack one of the television stations established by King Faisal's reforms. Saudi security forces respond and Prince Khalid was killed in the conflict. Khalid's brother, Prince Faisal ibn Musaid, blamed the king for his death. In March 1975, Prince Faisal ibn Musaid attended a large gathering with the king at his palace in Riyadh. The prince went forward to greet the king, then pulled out a gun and shot him. Palestine Things were getting worse for the Palestinians living in the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza. In 1977, the right-wing Likud party won the elections and, as promised, immediately began building new settlements in these occupied territories. By the mid-80s, there would be nearly 80,000 settlers in Gaza and the West Bank. That autumn, there were more peace discussions at the Geneva Peace Conference, which led to more declarations and fancy statements, but not much else. Egypt 
The United States continued to push for peace between Israel and the Arabs. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat surprised the world when he visited Israel in late 1977. The first Arab leader to visit Israel, President Sadat also addressed the Knesset and called for peace. The following September, President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin signed the Camp David Accords. Brokered by U.S. President Jimmy Carter, this new agreement normalized relations between Egypt and Israel. Israel agreed to withdraw its troops from the Sinai Peninsula and committed to granting full autonomy to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza within five years. The reaction from the Arab and Muslim world to this deal was swift. Condemnations poured in, accusing Egypt of collaborating with Zionists and legitimizing Israeli occupation. Eventually, Egypt was expelled from the Arab League. That winter, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin won the Nobel Peace Prize. Iraq As we mentioned at the top of the show, in 1958, King Faisal II of Iraq was overthrown in a coup where he and his entire family was killed. The opposition that performed the coup was made up of various groups, including the Iraqi branch of the Ba'ath Party. Iraq experienced three more coups, culminating in the Ba'ath Party taking over the country in 1968. One of the organizers of the latest coup was a young man named Saddam Hussein, who would later become Iraq's vice president. Saddam Hussein became president of Iraq in 1979. Iran While President Jimmy Carter was celebrating the Arab-Israeli peace accords at Camp David, a new problem was brewing in Persia. Throughout 1978, Iran was gripped by a storm of protests, demonstrations, and civil unrest. As the protests intensified and grew more violent, various segments of the country shut down. Shah Riza Pahlavi, the ruler of Iran, seemed powerless to stop the unrest which was being encouraged by the exiled religious leader Ayatollah Khomeini. In January 1979, the Shah fled Iran, eventually going into exile in the United States. A new Islamic Republic, based on Shiite jurisprudence, replaced the monarchy. Ayatollah Khomeini became the new supreme leader and quickly turned Iran from one of America's staunchest allies to one of its bitterest enemies. Iran, determined to position itself as the only Muslim state willing to stand against Western imperialism, adopted a strong anti-Israel stance. Iran also began supporting Lebanese Shiite militias, many of whom attacked Israeli targets. Years later, these Shiite militias would form the group known as Hezbollah. In the next episode, we'll discuss the First Intifada and the First Gulf War. At the end of every show, I encourage you to go and listen to my other podcast about the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from that podcast. I'm really surprised at how much people have, have enjoyed that podcast. It's a great podcast, alhamdulillah, but it's, it's not for kids. 
that is definitely an adult podcast. It's for at least for teenagers. Um, the concepts are probably too high-minded for a lot of kids and very technical things. We, we, we discuss a lot of technical things in that podcast that really got to have a certain level of maturity for. So you might be looking for some something where you can teach your children about Prophet Muhammad wasallam. and I got to admit my podcast is not going to be the one to do. Not for little kids at least. Older kids maybe. For little kids, I would suggest you get a book called I Want to Be Like Prophet Muhammad by Sister Ni'ma Ali. This book is written in simple, repetitive words that will hold and engage a young child's attention. I Want to Be Like Prophet Muhammad, it is the perfect story to teach about and encourage young children, very young children that is, how to emulate Prophet Muhammad The story is written in first person and it features a main character, a little boy, and it details how he wants to be like Prophet Muhammad. So he wants to pray like him. He wants to recite the Quran like him. He wants to be honest and brave like him, so forth and so on. Alhamdulillah, it's a great story. It has very beautiful pictures, really colorful pictures that you know kids will love. At the end of the story, the little boy explains why he wants to be like Prophet Muhammad. And he says so that he can be the best Muslim he can be. So this book, I Want to Be Like Prophet Muhammad by Ni'ma Ali, included within the book are hadith references, and you can use these ahadith to discuss different topics that were mentioned in the story with your child. Inshallah, after, after you read this story with your child, your child will want to be honest and caring and respectful and helpful, all that good stuff. You can order this book by going to the show notes for this episode, which will be islamichistorypodcast.com slash six dash nine or season six episode nine go there you'll see a link to the book or just go to amazon and type in i want to be like prophet muhammad by Ni'ma ali i receive no compensation for this i don't have any uh, affiliate links or anything like that i just think this would be a great tool for your child to learn about prophet muhammad inshallah so go ahead and look for it go to the show notes islamichistorypodcast.com slash six dash You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. 
Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll discuss the death of Salahuddin. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. The Crusaders defeat the Muslims at the Battle of Ardasuf, then go on to occupy Jaffa. Salahuddin employs a scorched earth strategy to hinder the Crusaders' progress. In 1191, Richard leads a march on Jerusalem, but turns back when they are only 12 miles away. Richard receives word of his enemies plotting against him back in Europe. With Richard marching on Jerusalem again in 1192, Salahuddin considers abandoning the city. And with that, let's discuss the final chapter of this series. Richard's Second Change of Heart In the spring of 1192, the Crusaders were once again camped at Beit Nuba, just a few miles from Jerusalem. But King Richard I and the French nobles under his command were arguing. They had arrived at Beit Nuba on June 10, 1192, eager to launch an attack on the Holy City. But Richard did not think they were ready. He just did not believe they were strong enough to attack Jerusalem. He used logic to explain this conviction. Besieging Jerusalem would be difficult and by no means guaranteed of success, he argued. The city was just as fortified and impregnable as it was the previous year, and Salahuddin was still holed up inside with almost his entire army who would fight to the death. And things were even worse now than they were the previous winter since Salahuddin had poisoned all the nearby wells. A much wiser move, he suggested, would be to attack Egypt. Egypt had abundant agriculture and produce to supply future campaigns. It was also strategically located at the confluence of the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, where the Crusaders already held a dominant position. Furthermore, he continued, Salahuddin's entire army was in Jerusalem, leaving Egypt unprotected and vulnerable. 